Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast focusing on climate news in the region stretching from Eastern Europe and Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Angelina Davidova, an environmental journalist from Russia. I've been covering climate-related topics for the last 10 years, and I've also been coming to the UN climate conferences for 12 years by now. I'm very happy to be here at the COP26 in Glasgow. And um, joining me here in Glasgow, not at the COP, but in the streets of Glasgow, are, as usual, Boris Schneider and Natalie Sauer. We have our very special COP26 series, and um, I'm recording this in a very unusual location. So in the middle of the main hall at the COP26 venue, there are a number of green telephone booths. They look just very regular British telephone booths. Somehow they are painted green. And uh, those booths are considered to be more or less quiet spaces. Well, they're not completely quiet because you can still hear a lot of hustle and bustle at the back uh, outside of the booth. And just a few minutes ago, there was a really large protest action with many youth groups making a lot of noise, demanding no carbon offsets, demanding no compensation schemes because they think all of this is just trying to run away from actual solutions to climate change. So they were beating up drums, they were shouting, and they were making a lot of noise. So I waited for them to finish so that I can record this now and welcome you again to the new episode of our podcast where we actually be talking about carbon offsets and um, carbon markets uh, with an expert of the area who's been working on these topics for many years by now. But before we get into this, I just like to thank you for your support as it helped us remain at the top of the podcast charts in Russia's Earth Science category on Apple for a second week in a row. We've had some cracking reviews already. Please leave one yourself, as it really helps to get the podcast noticed by many people. Also, don't forget to share the podcast link on Twitter, and you'll find us at Eurasian Climate. Natalie will have a roundup of the latest climate news from our region at the end of the episode, but before that, we have an interview with an expert in carbon offsetting. Thanks, Angelina. Elsewhere in Glasgow, negotiators are currently thrashing out the last details of Article 6, the part of the Paris Agreement designed to regulate carbon offsets. We want to equip you with all of the tools to properly understand this, as bad rules on emission reduction trading could make or break the Paris Agreement. I'm delighted to say we have a top carbon offset expert with us to guide us through this topic, Gilles Dufresne, a policy officer at Carbon Market Watch. Joining us from a busy COP26 conference centre, Gilles will also be explaining how Russia and Poland are pushing for lax carbon offset rules. But before we get into the thick of the negotiating stances, most people will have at some point heard the term carbon offsetting. However, there's still a lot of confusion about it, so I began by asking Gilles to explain what the term really means. A carbon offset is an emission reduction that somebody is purchasing in order to compensate their own emission reductions. So instead of reducing their own emissions, they will pay for somebody else to do it, essentially. And that's what is meant by a carbon offset. Okay. And, and what's Article 6? What's, what's being negotiated right now at COP26? Article 6 is an article in the Paris Agreement which essentially tries to regulate how 
countries or perhaps also companies will be able to pay for emission reductions that they are not delivering themselves. So how can they pay others to do the job, basically? How can they pay others to reduce emissions? Um, this can be quite complex in how this gets regulated. How do you trade emission reductions? How do you trade CO2? And how do you make sure that, you know, in the end, everything adds up on paper, but also adds up in the atmosphere and that we're not just reaching targets on paper, but really reducing emissions. And so we really need to kind of regulate of that. And that's what is being discussed under Article 6. And what are the big risks surrounding Article 6? What could go wrong? Well, Article 6 is really full of full of risks. Um, there are issues around how you really account for emission reductions. There is definitely a, a high risk of double counting reductions. Of course, when one country sells an emission reduction to another country, you need to make sure that only one of them is going to be counting that. Otherwise, if you start having multiple entities, whether they are companies or countries that count the same emission reductions, then the whole system kind of falls apart. It doesn't really matter if you have high, ambitious climate targets, if everyone is meeting their targets on paper with the same emission reductions. And so that's one of the major issues and loopholes um, that is threatening to undermine the Paris Agreement in those negotiations that some countries want to be allowed to essentially have their cake um, and, and, and eat it at the same time by selling emission reductions and also counting those emission reductions towards their own target. Um, that's one of the issues, and maybe the, the second biggest issue is how you deal with emission reductions that happened a long time ago and that, made, that were used to create come credits um, around 10 years or five years ago under a previous carbon market, a previous offsetting system, um, and that some countries would want to continue using today to meet a new target. So they're asking to use old emission reductions and old carbon credits to meet new targets. And that's, of course, an issue for ambition because we want to have new reductions and not just meet um, targets on paper. Uh, Gilles, uh, since you were part in an expert group giving advice on voluntary offsets, could you please unpack the following issue for us? So I read that uh, the task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets, which was instigated by UNFCCC Envoy Marcani last year, and maybe I should add that UNFCCC stands for United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So this task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets came under fire with uh, protesters who uh, were denouncing the use of offsets. One of the arguments was that in practice, because net zero pledges are voluntary ones without real enforcement mechanisms, this leads to many firms and countries relying far too heavily on offsets rather than slashing their own emissions. And uh, even Greenpeace executive Jennifer Morgan was one of many activists to call this uh, scheme greenwashing. And I think indigenous activists are also very critical of this. So could you explain to us what is the problem here? Yeah, I think this issue of companies offsetting their emissions is, is definitely tricky. I mean, there is a risk, and actually not only a risk, but we, we do see today that companies are using and abusing of the system of offsetting. And many of the announcements and claims that, that you see, um, whether it's in, in the media or sometimes even in, in advertisements or with, on labels and products, I mean, it's, it can be very misleading when a company says, well, this product has no net impact on the climate or this is net something or, you know, carbon neutral, CO2 neutral. In the end, it's, it's 
really hard to understand what the real impact is. And many of these announcements and, and claims rely on this idea that actually you're not really reducing the impact of the product or of the service that you're selling or that you're purchasing as a consumer, but you are keeping the same production practices and at the same time you are purchasing com credits. So again, you are paying somebody else to do the work for you instead of reducing your own emissions, you're purchasing these reductions from elsewhere. While the idea is that in theory you can you know, use that to make sure that we can reduce as much as possible, it's an efficient system, it's a market, it's very rational. In practice, the issue is we're not, we're not rational, right? We're not rational individuals and very often what we put in kind of economic textbooks doesn't, doesn't pan out in the real world and that's very much what we're seeing with carbon markets. In practice, a lot of companies are making big announcement that they will be net zero uh, in the future, that they will stop having any climate impact, but don't really put in place the real plans and the concrete measures that are needed to reduce and address their own emissions, but rather rely on this idea they can continue to offset. And so the, the possibility and the, the accessibility of these markets kind of reduces the need or the perceived need by these companies to reduce their own emissions. And so it acts as a deterrent, as a disincentive to really address your, your own emissions. And that's certainly what um, you know, NGOs like, like Greenpeace and others are really criticizing and seeing as an issue in the whole system that it puts the focus away from urgent action by companies to address their own emissions. If we do not invest today to reduce our own emissions or to at least develop the technologies that will enable us to reduce our emissions in, say, five years, ten years, because, of course, some sectors have a very hard time to decarbonize today. If, you, if we don't put in the investments and the efforts needed today, then in ten years we're still going to be in the same place. And we cannot just think we can rely on offsetting forever because we all ultimately need to reach zero. And to reach zero, at some point, we all need our own emission reductions, basically, and we can't just be selling them on to somebody else. And so it's really important that offsetting is not used as an excuse for inaction today, and that any finance that might go to projects through the purchase of carbon credits is really in addition to anything else or everything else that, that a company is doing. And at the moment, it's not really what we're seeing. And so that's, that's where the, the criticism is coming from. Could you tell us a little bit more about the task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets launched by Mark Carney? What is it and how does it relate to Article 6? So this task force is a task force that was um, indeed launched by Mark Carney, which is the, who, who was the, the former governor of the Bank of England and who, of course, has a lot of connections within the finance world. And it's a task force um, which essentially brings together big finance and big oil, to put it a bit, uh, a bit bluntly. Um, you have a lot of very famous um, banks and financial institutions together with many of the oil majors who are coming together to say, okay, we want to scale up to increase the size of this carbon market. We want to make it possible for us to have access to these carbon credits in the future. And in doing that, we also want to address the issues around environmental integrity of these markets. Part of that is, of course, because if they want to rely on those systems in the future, they also need to have credible systems. They need to have markets that are perceived as um, useful and effective to tackle the climate crisis. And so they do at least um, claim that they are attempting to 
address the environmental integrity issues. So basically addressing the fact that many of the CAM credits do not represent all the benefits they are supposed to represent. But until now, the focus of this task force has very much been on standardization and scaling up the system and really bringing big finance into carbon markets, which until until today and still today to some extent remain a relatively niche system. It's it's not a big it's not a big market if you look at the size of other financial markets, uh, like you know loans for houses and these sorts of things. Th these are the carbon market is very very tiny compared to that, and so a lot of the focus of this task force has been placed on trying to get the system to be bigger. Um, and to have more access, more liquidity, so being able to trade a lot. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think we, we really have to address the question of is this going to work for the climate or is this going to work for finance? There is no point in having a system with a lot of trades. Measuring the impact of markets by measuring the volume of trades is the completely wrong metric because If you take one carbon credit, let's say, it measures one ton of CO2, I don't care how many times it's being traded back and forth between banks. If you trade one ton of CO2 a hundred times between different banks, in the end, you still have reduced only one ton of CO2. And so what we need is a system that does scale up, but it needs to scale up the finance that goes to projects and not the amount of trades and the, the involvement um, of, of financial institutions in that system. So I guess, just to conclude, I think the, the task force does have some focus on environmental integrity, but until now, they have not really shown that they are ready to address these issues. And their priorities have been the other, the, the wrong way around. Basically, they have focused first on scaling up and standardization and second on environmental integrity. Um, and we need to, to turn that the other way around. Like, There's no point in scaling up a, a system that, that is non-functional. And so we first need to address the quality issues of this system. And, and so you've spoken already about the loophole of double counting. Could you tell us a bit about that of additionality? Yeah, additionality is one of the problems that has plagued the system for 10 or 15 years, ever since its, its, its inception. Basically, the, the bottom line is, if you purchase a COM credit, you want to know that the finance you have provided is reducing a ton of CO2. Because you're saying... If I'm taking a flight, it emits some CO2, but then I'm purchasing reductions or I'm paying for reductions somewhere else. And so overall, um, there's no net impact. So you need to make sure the finance you're contributing has reduced an extra ton of CO2. And crucially, that this reduction would not have happened without the finance you're providing. And this is what additionality means. It has to be additional. The reduction must be additional compared to what would happen if you had not been providing the finance. And the big issue that has really drawn down the, the market until now um, and the use of, of carbon credits is the fact that many, many projects actually were going to happen regardless of whether they receive finance from carbon credits. And one example to, to make it a bit, a bit more concrete is to think about a large project that aims to um, build, let's say, a lot of windmills that are connected to the grid. So you have a project developer that builds many windmills. These windmills are generating electricity um, and with the revenue from the electricity, the project can reimburse, uh, the project developer can reimburse their costs and, and make, a, make a profit out of it. A very large share of these projects are already economically competitive. So they make sense from a financial perspective. They are profitable. So if you are issuing calm credits and you're purchasing COM credits from one of these projects, 
as a buyer, as a, let's say, a consumer, you're taking a flight, you buy an offset, you think, well, that's great, I'm paying for these extra reductions, I'm paying for these windmills to be constructed. But in reality, what you're doing is just giving a bunch of money to a developer who thought, well, I, I'm going to build these windmills anyway, so I just discovered that there is this car market that exists. It sounds like a great thing to get some extra money, so I'm going to, get re I'm going to register under that system. And that's what we have seen under the clean development mechanism, which is the main carbon market that has uh, been established by the United Nations, um, where many, many of the projects were not additional. And so we're going to happen anyway. And all these credits generated under that system really have very little value for the climate. Could you explain what the stances of the countries in our region are on these questions? So, for example, how does somebody like Russia try to monetize their forests and uh, what is the stance of Poland? Yeah, Russia has been increasingly vocal in those uh, negotiations uh, and in, in the rooms. They have an interest in selling carbon credits from, from their forests and of course it's, it's never perfectly transparent what, what a country wants to do before it does it. Um, so we can only, we can only try to, to guess what is really, what they really have in mind. Um, but it seems pretty clear that They do want to operationalize a system to sell carbon credit as fast as possible. Um, and probably what they are aiming for is to basically claim that the existence of large forests, the presence of large forest areas on their territory is sucking carbon out of the atmosphere, which to a large extent is, is true. Um, and they want to generate carbon credits out of that. Um, and a very important element in that discussion is the question of how do you measure exactly the impact of selling carbon credits or the impact of those forests? Is Russia going to really increase the amount of carbon, CO2, of carbon dioxide it can store in its forest because it can sell carbon credits? Or is it simply going to continue doing exactly the same thing as it has been doing in the past and then come up with some you know, bogus scenario and say, well, we are actually saving a lot of trees, saving a lot of carbon, um, and hence we are uh, entitled to issue these carbon credits. That remains to be seen, um, but of course it is worrying that in these negotiations they are increasingly vocal to defend the inclusion of, of forests uh, and making sure that the possibility of, of creating carbon credits from, from forest projects is recognized and they have put, put forward some proposals um, that are really not, not helpful in terms of uh, environmental integrity and really measuring the impacts of, uh, of projects. And could you briefly comment on the position of Poland in this issue? Yes, um, so Poland is part of the European Union, of course, um, and the European Union within the United Nations negotiation speaks as, speaks as one voice. So Poland does not mm, take the floor on its own, let's say, and they don't, they don't really voice um, their position within those negotiations. But of course, they play a role within the, the agreed EU position, um, and within the EU Poland is clearly not known as a as a climate champion. Um, they have they have been for a while defending uh, 
flexibilities and, and measures to try to, to push back the, the European Union's transition towards a greener economy. Um, and among among the provisions that they are they are supporting is the continued use of, of old credits. So this idea that you can continue to rely on purchasing emission reductions that were generated 10 years ago, for example, under the under the CDM, the Clean Development Mechanism, um, and, and use that to meet new targets. So that's really something they have been promoting. Um, but at the same time, there is a quite strong consensus from other countries within the European Union that this should not be done. And so the, the EU has been um, championing and defending this idea that it is not acceptable to use old credits to meet new targets. Do you think it's better to have no deal on Article 6 at all than a bad deal? Yeah, I think ultimately that's the case. We're better off having no deal on Article 6 than having a bad deal. And the main reason for that is because having any sort of deal provides a great deal of credibility to the system. The UN is still widely recognized as a credible intergovernmental body, a credible institution where countries take decisions collectively and anything that is resulting from that process is often considered as being a good system. And that is definitely what we saw was definitely what, what we saw happening under the Kyoto Protocol um, so the previous agreement before the Paris Agreement uh, whereby the carbon markets established under that system were really perceived by let's say the general public or even private sector companies um, as you know a functioning market just because it has the, the UN label on it but the UN is also a very hard, a slow-moving um, body. It's really hard for everybody to agree on something. And so reforming a system, changing rules after they have been agreed is incredibly difficult. And even though we did observe a lot of issues with the quality of the clean development mechanisms so of previous carbon markets, it has proved nearly impossible to really change those rules. And so if we agree on bad rules, if we agree on, on, on weak rules that, that keep many loopholes open in the Paris Agreement when it comes to car markets, it will first provide a lot of legitimacy to using those rules, to using those markets, these flood markets, and at the same time it will be very, very difficult to actually change them. And so in that case we're better off with no agreement even though this does not prevent countries from trading. Countries can still trade and exchange emission reductions but at least they will not have the credibility and uh, the sanction from the from the United Nations um, and civil society and the media and the general public will be able to continue trying to hold them to account for, for their actions on this. Are you hopeful that countries will succeed in striking a good deal this week at COP26? And what would a good deal look like for you? Yeah, that's, that's exactly the issue. Uh, a good deal actually requires many, many different provisions um, which are both politically and technically complex. Um, we need to avoid double counting. We need to make sure we don't use old credits to meet new targets. We also need to better reflect human rights and ensure we have proper safeguards in these systems to make sure they do not harm um, people or the environment. We need to go beyond this idea of zero-sum compensation where you're just reducing somewhere and emitting somewhere else and in the end you just you know, achieve a a net zero impact. We need to move beyond that and deliver actual reductions. And so we need some um, mechanism and, and, and accounting practices that will that will deliver that. Um, we need a system that will contribute to adaptation finance. Uh, we need a system that will essentially 
break away from the past and correct all the mistakes. And there were many mistakes from the past. And getting all of that will be tremendously difficult. So I think I'd say there's maybe a 50-50 chance of getting a deal here at this at this COP26. Uh, but getting a good deal, um, the chances are a lot lower. And that's why it's really important to make sure we do not get a deal if it's not a deal that is completely closing all the all the loopholes that we are seeing at the moment in this text. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Gilles Dufran for joining us on the podcast live from the COP26 Conference Centre. Now let's take a look at the latest news from our region. Poland and the Czech Republic have continued to face off at the European Court of Justice over the future of a century-old Polish coal mine. On Tuesday the 9th of November, the Czech Republic argued the mine stole its drinking water and caused air pollution, while Poland insisted the mine was essential for its energy security. Bulgaria benefited from an unusual price discount from Gazprom in November, Euractiv reports. Rather than rising by 32%, the price of gas was reduced, though it is currently unknown to what extent due to trade secrets. The discount comes as Bulgarians are about to vote in presidential and parliamentary elections on the 14th of November. At the time of recording, Tajikistan and Turkey were about to strike a deal on environmental cooperation as part of COP26. Turkey's Euryet News reports that the agreement will seek to reduce waste. Kazakh Prime Minister Askar Mamin has proposed to set up a joint business council between the European Union and Central Asian countries. He plans to do this during the first European Union Central Asia Economic Forum in Bishek on November the 5th, according to the Astana Times. During the meeting, Mamin insisted Kazakhstan would seek to partner with the EU in achieving the goals of the European Green New Deal, which commits the continent to be carbon neutral by 2050. That's almost it for now. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and share the episode on social media. We'd also like to thank our supporters at the Battleground magazine. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. Get in touch on Twitter where you'll find us at Eurasian Climate. We'll be back in a couple of days with a new episode. So see you then. Mm-hmm.